All right, so last time we, we talked about Ruth uh, 1 and, and 2. And so today we're going to look at the, the rest of Ruth's story. And I want to kind of set the scene for you in what's going on in Ruth um, chapter 3. The village was quiet and dark. A steady breeze blew the cool night air across her face, so she pulled her cloak tighter. The moon gave just enough light for her to make her way. It was late, later than a respectable woman should have been out. What am I doing, she thought to herself as she stumbled down the path that would take her past the last house and down to the threshing floor. Tonight, she was taking a big risk. What if he gets the wrong idea? Sure, but what idea is he supposed to get if you're sneaking out to wake him up in the middle of the night, she muttered to herself as she walked. Why did she need to meet him secretly at night? If anyone caught her with him, her reputation would be ruined. Though it wasn't like she could slide that much further down the social ladder. This was all her idea anyway. If it backfires, it'll be her fault, she thought to herself. At the edge of town, she almost turned back. But what other choice do we have, she thought. It was a desperate gamble, but these were desperate times. So in Ruth 3, we see the... Uh, reach the climax of the story. Ruth 1 and 2 set up the conflict that we talked about last time, the challenge for Naomi and Ruth, which in a word is survival. One commentator calls this story the crisis for the royal line, meaning that without their survival, without Naomi and Ruth's survival, there would be no David. Or Dave, uh, Ruth is David's great-grandmother. We saw last time that even though Naomi was bitter about their situation at first, she came to realize um, that God had not turned against them and was actually providing for them in unexpected ways. Naomi and Ruth's struggle came of being women in a man's world. That is, the decline in their fortunes directly resulted from the loss of the male members of their family. So like in Sense and Sensibility, where the death of Mr. Dashwood precipitates the novel's conflict um, for Mrs. Dashwood and her daughters, and just as incense and sensibility, we expect their half-brother John should take care of them in some way, should have provided for his stepmother and his half-sisters. There are members of Naomi's family that should have provided for Naomi and, and Ruth. And we've met one of them already, Boaz. And as we saw in Ruth too, he did provide for them, and quite generously. Uh, but that provision was, was temporary. In Ruth 3, harvesting is completed. Ruth had supported herself and Naomi by gleaning in the fields during harvest time. So Ruth 2 ends with, she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now, barley harvest was about a month or so in April, and wheat harvest was a month or so, roughly May. So she had two months there where she was gathering, um, uh, gathering grain. And if her first day's haul, gleaning at Boaz's barley field, was typical of the rest of her gleaning days, it's likely she could have collected enough for herself and Naomi to survive the year. I remember Ruth had brought home an ephah of barley that first day. And that was about two weeks' worth of food for the two of them, about 29 pounds of grain. But for Naomi, that, this provision didn't represent real security. So Ruth 1 opens... Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? And the word translated security is in Hebrew, manoach. 
and it literally means a place of rest. And back in Ruth 1.9, Ruth had urged her daughters-in-law to return to their families in Moab, saying, The Lord grant that you may find rest, menucha, each in the house of her husband. So that word, menucha, also means rest or resting place. And like chesed, the word for God's loyal love that we talked about, rest is another key word in the book of Ruth. That's one really interesting thing about biblical stories is that there's often a key word or a like, motif kind of running through the story that you can pick up certain themes just from the, the key words. And so in this part of the story, rest is that word. And that's in Hebrew characters up there. That's part of my mission to make everyone learn Hebrew, to show you these. And the uh, first word is Manoach. Well, the word on the right is Manoach, and the next one is Menuchah. And you can see they look pretty similar. They're related words. Um, so the use of these key terms links Naomi's words in, in 3.1 back to her wish for her daughters-in-law in 1.9 that they would find rest with a new husband. Where it said, Lord grant that you may find rest. So for Naomi, finding a permanent resting place for Ruth was the ultimate resolution for their situation. Just as finding suitable mar marriages was the ultimate resolution to the story in Sense and Sensibility. Sorry if I spoiled that for you. It's a 200-year-old novel, but they get married in the end. Sorry. Now you don't have to read it. All right. So in, uh, in Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 12.9, Reaching Menucha, rest, meant Israel had reached the promised land. So Deuteronomy 12.9 says, For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. It's referring to you have not yet entered the promised land and taken possession of the inheritance. Inheritance is another word that gets used a lot for referring to the promised land. The land God had promised you would inherit. Um, so probably as an extension of this idea, the reaching the promised land is rest, um, imagery or metaphor, attaining rest came to symbolize the arrival of God's salvation through his Messiah, so the ultimate rest. And we see that in Isaiah 11.10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's even more clear in Hebrews 4. It says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And he's quoting there from a psalm, but the psalm points back to Israel's first generation that disobeyed God in the wilderness. And he said, no, they disobeyed. They're not going to get to enter my rest, which is the promised land. And here in Hebrews, the writer says, We who believed do enter that rest. Well, rest back then meant promised land, so what does rest mean in Hebrews? It means you've entered that rest, that place of, of salvation that God has provided. Uh, so this theme in the book of Ruth is another way the story reflects on a small scale, the larger scale story of the Bible. Ruth's need for rest and security with the husband parallels our need for salvation through Christ. Um, the analogy is more obvious when you think about the New Testament presentation of the church as the bride of Christ. You can see that in passages like Matthew 9.15 or Revelation 19.7. 
not going to turn to, but the it's a New Testament presents the church as Jesus' bride. And so to secure this rest that Naomi wishes for for her um, daughter-in-law, she called upon the tradition of the, the kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew, goel is this, this word for the kinsman redeemer. Redemption is a dominant key word in the book of Ruth, but especially in the second half that we're looking at. So between Ruth 2.20 and 4.22, this Hebrew word, ga'al, just the, the root word that you can make all kinds of redemption words out of, occurs 22 times. So that's 22 times in 44 verses. That averages to the word shows up every other verse through this part of, of the book. Um, and the first hint of Naomi's strategy to secure a redeemer appears in Ruth 2.20. Naomi explained to her daughter-in-law, the man is related to us. He's one of our redeeming kinsmen. This is using the word goel. I took this from a translation you probably don't use very often. It's the Tanakh, a Jewish translation of the Old Testament. And I did that because English translations really don't know what to do with this word goel. It means one who redeems. And so, but a number of translations, like the New King James uses relative. No, that's what the, the person who was a redeemer was a close relative, but a redeemer was not, a close relative was not necessarily a redeemer. And so using a word like close relative makes it easy for us to overlook um, that the role carried important obligations. So I might say to you, hey, that person you met last week, that was one of my relatives. But in our society, being relatives doesn't necessarily imply any social obligations, like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That was your second cousin three times removed. That's, I didn't need to know that. Um, but there's no expectation that, say, that my relatives should repay my debts if I can't, you know, just to uphold the family's reputation or to keep property within the family. Now, that sort of familial obligation of was more of a part of our culture, Western culture, 200 so years ago, but it's not a concept that we really relate to now. So even use another uh, Jane Austen example in Pride and Prejudice, Mr. What's it, Bennett's inheritance, because he doesn't have any sons, it's entailed on his nephew. Entailed just meant, all right, has to stay within the family, so the inheritance has to go to the next closest male relative. So this used to be kind of an idea in our culture, or in Western culture, but it's not something we really think of now, family uh, relations having any kind of social or financial obligations on each other. But in ancient Israel, being a goel or a kinsman redeemer meant that you did have precisely that kind of an obligation. So in Leviticus 25, it talks about some of the laws about redemption and this role of the redeemer. It says if one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Now, when it refers to sold some of his possession, means sold some of the land that was allotted to him, some of his allotted portion of the, um, the promised land. And so if your cousin sold his share of the family property, you had the right to redeem it, meaning to buy it back, to keep it in the family. Or if you needed property, or if you needed to sell your property because you needed the money, you were first supposed to offer it to the next closest relative, the one 
who would have had the right of redemption if you had sold it to someone outside the family. So we see an example of that in Jeremiah. Here, this is Jeremiah is given a, a vision from God or word from God that tells him this is what's going to happen. Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you saying, buy my field, which is Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. This is during this Babylonian kind of oppression and siege of, of Jerusalem. And she's kind of saying, you know what, I'm getting out of here. Buy this land. It's your next. I need the money so I can you know, bail or something like that. So um, it's kind of like a first right of refusal sort of thing for selling stuff. But redemption didn't just apply to buying land. Say that same cousin didn't have land anymore, so he had sold himself into slavery. A kinsman redeemer could buy him back from slavery, like paying his debt to get him out of debtor's prison. So you see if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells with him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, you say that you say stranger or sojourner, they're meaning non-Israelite. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. Or or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him. Or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him. Or if he's able, he may redeem himself. And the reason this is referring to foreigners owning Israelite slaves is that there are different rules for Israelites owning Israelite slaves. Basically, the rule was you couldn't own Israelite as a slave. They could be your servant, but you had to like free them from their it's like indentured servitude after a, a period of time. So, but in these cases, um, the right to redeem seems to be just an option, like a right of first refusal. Like you want to buy it? No, okay, the next person can buy it. These passages say the person may be redeemed, not that it, it must be redeemed. But Ruth and Naomi are not needing redemption from slavery. And to this point in the story, nothing's been said about any property Naomi's husband Elimelech may have owned in the area of Bethlehem. So this idea that being the redeemer has an element of optionality to it might be why, even though back in Ruth 2.20 they said, oh, he's one of our redeemers, but nothing has happened yet. So Naomi's looking at Boaz is one of our redeemers. He hasn't acted on that right to redeem yet. Um, so Ruth needs a kinsman redeemer not to free her from uh, slavery or buy property. She needs him to take on the role of uh, levere. Levere is a Latin word for brother-in-law, and they use it to describe this process of when a married man died without an heir, his brother had the duty to marry his brother's widow. And the practice is called leveret marriage and appears in biblical tradition long before it's made part of the law of Moses. In Genesis 38, Judah's son Ur dies without an heir. So Judah tells his second son to perform the duty of a brother-in-law with Tamar, Ur's widow, to raise up offspring for Ur. Now there's more to that story, and I'm not going to go into it because there's kids in the audience, but there ends up that the story is alluded to at the end of Ruth because Boaz is descended from Tamar's son Perez. Um, So that Example of leveret marriage or like substitution back then factors into um, this story of redemption as well. And the practice of leveret marriage was eventually made official in the law 
It says in Deuteronomy 25.5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. In this case, stranger just means somebody not in your clan. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother for her. And that passage goes on to explain the purpose of um, taking her as a wife, and that's to produce an heir for your dead brother. So Naomi was looking for a kinsman redeemer to marry Ruth, but it's not really clear whether the obligation for Quivira marriage, as described in that Deuteronomy 25 passage, but it actually extended beyond the deceased's brothers. And this uncertainty be about a redeemer's obligation to take on that role as well as buying property factors into the tension in the story in Ruth 3 and 4. So in Ruth 3, uh, Naomi said, again, shall I not seek a place of rest for you? So Manoach. I remember back in 9, she said, may the Lord grant you rest, Menucha. So he had in, there's an important contrast in the way she says it in chapter 3 versus the way it came out in, in chapter 1. In chapter 1, she wants God to give Ruth rest. And in chapter 3, she will look for that place of rest for Ruth. So it might seem like she's taking things into her own hands. I wanted God to find you rest, but he didn't, so now I'm going to have to do it myself. But I don't think that's actually the case at all. What's going on here? Naomi's acting on an opportunity that God has arranged. It's a bit cliche to point to Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good, but, but it's true in this case that God often works through other people to advance his, his plan. And he arranged for Ruth to cross paths with Boaz. Now it's up to Naomi and Ruth to make the most of that um, opportunity. So Ruth 3, 2-4, Naomi gives Ruth instructions about meeting Boaz that night at the threshing floor. The scene is that Harvesting is over. He's going to be using the threshing floor to take all the wheat, and threshing is, I should have found a picture of it, winnowing is where they take the stock, get separated from the, the grain and the chaff and that sort of thing. So he's doing that tonight, that night at the threshing floor. Probably you needed kind of a nice breeze to get the winnowing done and the chaff to blow away and the heavier grain to fall down. So probably because, oh, wait, the weather looks like it's going to be good for threshing, so it's my turn to go down there. Um, so she says, uh, Boaz is winning barley tonight at the threshing floor. She tells her to wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. So basically, she tells her to get all dressed up like she's going on a date or to a wedding. But there are surprising elements in what Naomi asks her to do. First, she's to go to him at the threshing floor. And some commentators think that threshing floors were the site of, kind of debauched celebrations during harvest festivals. Not sure if that we have that much evidence for it. Usually they point to Judges 21, 19 to 21, where we're talking about, okay, the 
women of Shiloh are going to come out and dance, come out from the vineyards to do this feast to the Lord and say something like, well, maybe there was always a harvest festival or something. And if that's the case, then it would have looked bad for a reputable woman to go down there. But even if it's not the case, and I don't think that it needs to be the case for this um, story, so even if he was just down there supervising the work with his men and guarding his grain, it would have looked suspicious for a woman to sneak out there alone at night. You all heard this saying. It was uh, popular with my mom and when I was a teenager. It says, nothing good happens after midnight. I'll probably have to start using it myself soon. The girls are becoming teenagers. But the saying was undoubtedly coined for situations like this. Parents advising their children to stay out of trouble and not put themselves in compromising situations after dark. But here we have Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, kind of her mother figure, asking her to put herself in a potentially compromising situation. Hey, go run down to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Something good might happen. It's after midnight. <laughs> it's the opposite of the advice we kind of expect. But another surprising thing is that Naomi doesn't use the word goel in 3.1 to describe Boaz. She says, hey, isn't Boaz our relative going to be a winnowing barley tonight? She doesn't say our close relative, kinsman, redeemer. Or anything. She just says, our relative, it's a word that means like someone known to us, kind of acquaintance, but probably it's like, you know, remember that guy, distant relative, I meant she doesn't use the word redeemer. And that same word is, appears in Ruth 2.1 when, when we're introduced to Boaz, saying like, now there was a man named Boaz, he was a relative of Elimelech, and he was wealthy. That's basically what it says doesn't say anything about their relationship, just says, hey, this was one of their distant relatives. Um, so she doesn't mention the word goel, doesn't talk about redemption with Ruth, and she tells her, he will tell you what you should do. That's how her instructions end. So she's supposed to go there, sit, wait for him to tell her what to do. And Naomi's request of Ruth isn't the only surprising request in this story. See, Ruth does exactly what Naomi said to do and more. It says, verse 8 tells us what happened next. It happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there was a woman who was lying at his feet. So, you know, he definitely looked surprised. It, it would be a bit startling to be awoken in the middle of the night to find someone next to where you were asleep. So Boaz's reaction is understandable, as is his question in, in verse 9. He's like, who are you? I'm sure he didn't, either he didn't recognize her immediately in the darkness. It was more of like, oh, who's there? But Ruth answers him. Like, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative of Goel. Wait, that wasn't in Naomi's instructions. She said, wait, and he'll tell you what to do. So what does Ruth's um, request, take your maidservant under your wing, mean? Her words more literally are translated to spread your wing over your servant, for you are the goel. 
So she understood Naomi meant to remind Boaz that he was one of their redeemers. But in this request, she goes beyond Naomi's instructions. She, she just said, lay down, he'll tell you what to do next. Instead, Ruth takes the initiative and asks Boaz to marry her. Yes, Ruth's request is a marriage proposal. We're used to a man asking, and then in recent years, I've been told sometimes girls ask the boys, and they're like, well, that's not right. That must be a newfangled thing that the kids do. Where'd they get that idea? And I'm like, wait, the Bible, Ruth's asking Boaz to marry. That's not supposed to have happened that long ago. But it is. It's a marriage proposal. And the same phrase is used um, to describe God metaphorically of marrying Israel and taking that role as uh, when he chose them as his uh, people. Um, so Ezekiel 16.8 says, I spread my wing over you and I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. So it describes God taking Israel as his wife. Don't read Ezekiel 16 for family devotions. That's why I had to use an ellipsis. You guys must not know what's in Ezekiel 16. <laughs> Don't look. All right, so by asking Boaz to spread his wing over her, Ruth was asking him to make her his wife, just like that um, imagery occurred in Ezekiel 16. But Ruth's request also echoes what Boaz had wished on Ruth's behalf in Ruth 2.12. Which you can see this kind of a pattern going on where Naomi says, I wish the Lord would provide rest for you. Or in Boaz says, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So there's these things that happen earlier in the story where the theme kind of gets picked up and resumed later. There's a name for that in music too, where there's this like little motif or thing that kind of bounces through the whole symphony or something. But uh, literature, you can do that too. And then here, her request echoes that saying, Boaz is saying, I hope that you benefit from coming to God and coming under his wings for refuge. And this key word, wing, uh, means taking refuge in the Lord's, under the Lord's wing symbolizes trust in the Lord to provide. So another example is Psalm 36, 7. But, so Ruth requests that Boaz take her under his wing reveals one way that God's provision for Ruth um, could be realized. So even that Boaz's wish for Ruth to be provided for could be um, uh, come to be true. Right, so Ruth 3, 10 to 13 contains uh, Boaz's response to Ruth's proposal. And it may be that Naomi and Ruth were both hoping for a straight, yes, I'll marry you right now. But Boaz is aware that while he is a redeemer, he's not the one with the first right of redemption. Part of what he says to her, he says, don't fear, I will do for you all that you've requested. For the people of the, my town know you are a virtuous woman. Now it's true, I am a close relative, Goel. However, there is a relative closer than I, also Goel. We'll stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So he assures Ruth that he will marry her if this other relative will not, and he promises to settle the matter as soon as possible the next morning. So meanwhile, Ruth should remain with him at the threshing floor that night. 
Now, one of the big questions for interpreters about this scene in Ruth 3 is, did anything happen between Boaz and Ruth at the threshing floor? Did they get to know each other in the biblical sense? To use a euphemism. So the uncertainty about what happened comes from the fact that sometimes the Hebrew word for feet is a euphemism. So interpreters wonder whether Ruth was supposed to uncover Boaz's feet literally. He'd probably wake up when his feet got cold. Or if she was supposed to uncover his feet in the husband and wife procreating sense. Just not a good euphemism for that, that I can use in church. <laughs> it could be a euphemism here. And this, I mean, this one word is what most interpreters hang on. They're like, oh, they did something bad. But it could be a euphemism, but I really don't think it is. I think it, it probably isn't. The form of the word translated feet, margeloth, is rare and unusual. But it fits a pattern of a type of... Um, Hebrew noun, with this pattern of words starting with M, that refer, it's used for nouns designating a place. Um, so like the Hebrew word itself for place is makom, follows that pattern. And we've learned one of these words already today with manoach, a place of rest. So that pattern means place of something. So margaloth probably means place of the feet, as in place where the feet were as he was lying down asleep. And this interpretation, I think, is strengthened by um, the similar Hebrew word for place of the head, merashoth, that appears mainly in context referring to where a person's head was physically when they were laying down asleep. Um, so one example is Elijah. He looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. If you know the rest of the context, he was sleeping, wakes up, there's some uh, food by his head, and he goes to sleep again. Same word is in Genesis 28, where Jacob's laying down at, the, um, at Bethel, and he sees this vision of God. And when he wakes up, he takes the stone that was at the place of his head, like, that he was using as a pillow, and it makes it into a, a remembrance for, for God. So I think the ambiguity in words, like, well, did feet mean, was it a euphemism or not? It's like supposed to raise the dramatic tension but the use of the form of the word that he used was hinting at, it's not really what you're thinking of, but uh, I wanted you to, to wonder and be slightly uncertain. Probably, I can't say for sure. But did anything happen? I don't think so. So first we have that likelihood the word for feet basically means foot of the bed, not the headboard. And second, Boaz says essentially, I'll marry you, but not quite yet. And third, it doesn't fit the story's hints about the integrity of Boaz and Ruth. So the setting makes it clear Boaz could have taken advantage of Ruth if he'd had less integrity, but he was an honorable man, not one to take advantage of a woman in the dark of night. So recall that Ruth 2.1 introduced Boaz as a man of great wealth. Of the family of Elimelech, his name was Boaz. The man of great wealth, the phrase is Gibor Chayel. And Chayel can refer to wealth, but it can also refer to virtue or valor. So Boaz's introduction in Ruth 1 could also mean he was a man of great virtue, the family of Elimelech. Now we know he's a rich man, 
So I think it probably is meant to have kind of both, um, both meanings there. And we see the writer of Ruth likes to do that a lot, of use words with, it means this, but later on the context will make you reconsider that this word also meant that also. Um, and Ruth's, or Boaz's answer to Ruth's proposal also highlights his virtue and draws attention to Ruth as a similarly virtuous woman. don't fear, I'll do for you what you request. Everyone knows you are a vir virtuous woman. And when he says virtuous woman, the words in Hebrew are eshet chayel, the same word, chayel. And you might be familiar with the other places that eshet chayel appears in the Old Testament. It's used in Proverbs to refer to an excellent or virtuous wife. Like an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, or the most famous one, is Proverbs 31.10, who can find a virtuous wife. Um, so this uh, term is referring to Ruth's reputation as a woman known for her bravery and her loyalty to Naomi. And it kind of reminds us of what he said when he first met her back in Ruth 2.11. And there's too much text on this slide, sorry. And it says, it's been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. So everything that she's done, he knew about, he knew about her loyalty and her care for her, um, for her mother-in-law. And so this is connecting back to his general assessment of her character, and also reflects a move toward fulfillment of his own wish for Ruth, and that the Lord bless her for coming to the Lord for refuge. And the fulfillment for both Ruth and Naomi involved their active participation. They weren't just sitting at home waiting for God to provide, they saw the opportunity that God had provided and they acted on it in faith. So people often wrongly characterize the belief in God's sovereignty or his predestination or his election as meaning we don't have to do anything. God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish and he doesn't need us. I think that's right. He doesn't need us, but he often chooses to work through us. So we can't say that missions isn't important because... God will save everyone who's elect anyway with, without our help. God works through means, and what if your decision to tell someone about Christ was the means by which God had planned that they'd be saved? And I think that's the main reason that Ruth 3 is part of this story. The end of the story is the same. If we skip from the end of Ruth 2, where Boaz says, hey, or where Naomi says, hey, Boaz is one of our redeemers, to the beginning of verse or chapter 4, where Boaz chooses to exercise that right as a redeemer. The Ruth 3, I think, shows us that God provides through the, the active faith of those who trust in him. All right, so the next morning, Boaz fulfills his promise to resolve the issue with the other relative. Now, he'd proved he was serious to both Naomi and Ruth that morning, and he sent Ruth home with six ephahs of barley. It says that in Ruth 3.17. Remember that one ephah was about 29 pounds of grain. So that was like two weeks of, of ration. So six ephahs was about 170 pounds. That was enough food for them for about three months. I'm not quite sure how she got it home. Maybe she was really strong. <laughs> but I couldn't carry 170 pounds that many Probably, it was probably a couple miles out of town, but I'm old and out of shape. So. All right, successful resolution to the story is described in Ruth 4. And first we start with 4, 1 through 12, where there's the scene at the gate of Bethlehem. Boaz officially acquires the right to both 
buy back Elimelech's land and marry Ruth. And at first, the other relative was open to just buying back the land, but Boaz insisted that the one who redeems the land must also marry the heir's widow. So because of that, the other relative passes his right to redeem to Boaz. The people who witness the transaction then congratulate Boaz, saying, um, in Ruth 4, 12, they say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Judah bore to, to Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So by referring to Judah and Tamar, they're referring back to that other story about Leviric marriage. And the line of Judah that led to David and to Jesus came through Perez, the son that um, was provided to Tamar through her unusual initiative when Judah didn't follow through on his duty to provide her with a husband. So we see that in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, Judah, Perez by Tamar, Boaz, by, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. So now we've come to the end of the story. The end of the story where we see how Naomi has turned from being bitter about her situation to being blessed by, by it. Boaz marries Ruth. Ruth 4.14 says the Lord gave her conception. A verse other than Ruth 4.14 says he gave her conception. That must be a mistake. It's in Ruth 4. Maybe 4.9 maybe. It says the Lord gave her conception. Maybe it's 4.13. But this means that her barrenness was ended. So the passages elsewhere where God intervenes and gives a barren woman a child use similar language like Genesis 21, 1 Samuel 1, Luke 1. So Ruth and Boaz have a son, but the women of Bethlehem congratulate Naomi. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. <clears throat> um, yeah, I know I'm running late. Sorry. They also uh, correct Naomi's opinion from chapter 1. That he says, the Lord brought me back empty, and they say, no, your daughter-in-law is better to you than seven sons. So remember, maybe Ruth was, why are you not, why are you saying, I, I'm right here with you. And he said, oh, you brought me back empty. And now the women of the town are saying, you know what, Ruth turned out to be worth more than seven sons to you. Um, and then finally, and perhaps most surprisingly, they say, there's a son born to Naomi. And I think this reflects the purpose of the uh, Leviret marriage. Boaz explained this in Ruth 4.10. Can you uh, read the highlighted part there? That his role was to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So essentially, Obed takes the place of Malon in the family tree. So Naomi's son, who is married to Ruth, Obed's kind of fits that role of in their family now. And if he becomes the son that Naomi lost, in a sense. So when the story ends emphasizing God's role in the redemption, so verse 13 says, the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. And then 14 says, the Lord made sure Naomi was not left without a redeemer. And so the crisis for Ruth and Naomi is over and solves the crisis for Israel's royal line. 
the son that the Redeemer provided for Naomi was the grandfather of David, and the future son of David would one day redeem all of us. So what can we learn from this um, Ruth chapter 3 and 4? The first thing I think is that God uses the active faith of his people. So God provided the Redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, but the decision to act on the opportunity was left up to them. In the same way, God has provided a Redeemer for all humanity in Jesus Christ, but the decision to accept that redemption is left to us. And this is the great mystery of the gospel, the balance of of God's sovereign plan and our free choice um, in faith to accept him. We can see hints of that in Romans 16, 25, 27, the closing of the letter, but Paul's referring to the gospel as, as a mystery that was kept secret since the world began. But now it's been made known, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. It's like the mystery is revealed. The mystery is God had this plan to send his son and redeem all humanity, but it still requires an obedience of faith. The second thing I think we can um, see from the book of Ruth is that God delights in providing redemption. So the Bible's big story of redemption is Christ, his life, his death on the cross, his victory over death and the resurrection. But God shows his power to save and his power to, to redeem over and over throughout the Bible. And the Exodus is the classic example. It's so classic that the prophets use um, describe God's plans for the future redemption of, of Israel and of all peoples by pointing back to the events of the Exodus. If we go to Isaiah 11 again, talks about the root of Jesse and his resting place. And it says in verse 16, there'll be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day they came, he came up from the land of Egypt. And in that day when the Messiah comes and everyone is saved, including all of the nations, it will be just like when God brought Israel out of, of the land of Egypt. So Ruth's story also illustrates God's delight in, in redemption. And it does so in a way that makes I think the concept seem more uh, real for us. So we usually think of our sin in the abstract. It's not a concrete thing that we can see. It's um, it's not a problem that we know is, is sitting there waiting for a decision or a physical burden that we can carry around. Like, I know I have to deal with this because I have to carry my sin around all the time. It's this intangible thing. But R- Ruth and Naomi's need for a redemption, their need for a redeemer was tangible and physical. Their very survival depended on a successful resolution, and their ultimate fate was in the hands of the Redeemer. And our fate is also in the hands of a Redeemer, and our need was was just as great. Actually, our need is greater than theirs, because they stood just to lose life on this earth, and we stand to lose life eternal without our Redeemer. I think that's this story, I think, shows that God just delights in providing redemption in unexpected ways and using us to, uh, to further his will here on earth. So let me pray. God, I thank you for this uh, text and this message that you've um, sent to us through this story about your, your love for us, your desire for uh, uh, salvation um, to be given to all the nations and all the peoples. We thank you for the opportunity and the privilege we have to to work with you, for you to use us to accomplish your work. 
and we pray that you would um, help us to remember that and live in that kind of active faith this week as we go about it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, Doug.